Blog Talk Radio. the innovation impulse from idea to business model and emerging best practices. Welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of the show, and joining me in the virtual studio is my colleague, principal co-host and co-founder of Pop Health Week, Mr. Fred Goldstein. Hey, Fred. Hey, Greg. How are you doing down there? Are you in Jacksonville? Yes, I'm in Jacksonville today, doing very well. How's life out on the West Coast? Oh, we have June gloom in July, but I'm not complaining. So for those of you not familiar with Fred, he is a subject matter expert with deep roots in the hospital health plan, health wellness and prevention space from disease management to population health. Fred is a board member and past chair of the Population Health Alliance, having served most recently as its executive director and now captains the ship at Accountable Health LLC, a co-sponsor of this broadcast. And now a few words about our special guest, Rushika Fernandapoli, MD. Dr. Fernandapoli is a co-founder and CEO of Iora Health, a growing and disruptive force in the direct practice, membership, and retainer medicine market, albeit with a bit more to the story, which we'll hear about shortly. An impressive career path reflects a 10-year-plus commitment of determined efforts to improve the quality of health care delivered to patients. Dr. Fernandopoli was the first executive director of the Harvard Interfaculty Program for Health Systems Improvement and served as managing director of the advisory board company, a global research technology and consulting firm, and performance improvement partner for 180,000 leaders and 4,500-plus organizations across healthcare and higher education verticals. He serves on the faculty and earned his AB, MD, and MPP from Harvard University and completed his clinical training at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Iora Health believes that better health care starts with primary care. The foundation of their practice philosophy and delivery system infrastructure is built upon three core principles. One, payment focused on outcomes. Two, patient at the center, and three technologies that enable care. One of IRS Health's goals is to empower the individual, and they utilize care teams and health coaches as the connection. IRA Health also places a focus on integrating behavioral health. So, Fred, with that brief intro, over to you. Help us get to know this visionary physician leader. Thank you so much, Greg. And, Rushika, welcome very much to Pop Health Week. How are you doing today? I am doing great, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, we're very pleased to. Could you give us a, a little background? Obviously, uh, we heard a little bit about Iora Health. What was the genesis for this organization and company? So Iora Health really uh, sprang from a predecessor company called Renaissance Health, which I started about uh, 11 years ago. And the genesis really is uh, as a doctor, as a primary care doc, 
uh, you know, realizing that the model that we have to deliver health care uh, is suboptimal. You know, I think if you look at the last 50 or 100 years, we've had unbelievable innovation in the stuff of healthcare, the, it's also miraculous, the drugs, the devices, the surgeries, the interventions we can give to people that were never heard of, you know, um, 50 years ago. The process of how we deliver it to people, however, has largely been frozen in time, right, if you think about how we actually deliver it to human beings. And I think I spend a lot of time trying to uh, make incremental changes to the model. You know, how do we take existing practices, existing health systems and tweak them? Uh, and realize that I probably didn't have the patience to do that. Uh, and the, the simple insight was maybe we ought to, um, as part of what we're doing to innovation, is actually start over, is try and rebuild the whole healthcare delivery model and do it from the ground up. And that really was the genesis of all of this work. So when you say start over, your your practice is obviously structured differently, but was that possible? Are you able to do that in a fee-for-service world, or what did you have to do to, to begin that? Yeah, no, so I think if you say you want to start over and build a new model of care delivery, uh, the first thing you have to do is get out of the current payment model, right? The reason that the current system operates the way it does, by and large, is how, a result of how we get paid, uh, which is fee-for-service, you know, pay-per-doctor sick visit. So what we get is lots of sick visits. We get widgets off the line. We've turned healthcare uh, into a series of transactions. And again, I think, and unfortunately, a lot of the ways we try to fix it, therefore, are more transactions, you know, uh, pay for performance, uh, meaningful use, medical homes, there are more checkboxes, more sort of criteria, more transactions. And uh, one of the premises is that it's, transactions have never cured anyone. They actually get in the way. If we want to rebuild healthcare, we have to rebuild on the basis of, of relationship, because relationships are what actually changes things. Uh, but in order to do that, we have to get a new payment model based on relationships. So we, um, one of the very few things we refuse to do is, uh, is take fee-for-service payment. So all of our practices are based on some form of population-based payment. Happy to go into detail about that, but, but just not fee-for-service. So you've moved towards different – when you say different uh, models of payment, is you're talking about capitation or other uh, more global types of mechanisms? Absolutely. So we sort of start with sort of primary care capitation, where essentially pay us a fixed fee per patient and let us get on with it. And then you can tie to that, you know, a variety of ways where we can sort of share in the value created if we actually do indeed make people healthier. So that goes from sort of bonuses to uh, shared savings models all the way up to some form of sort of global risk. Uh, but the, the, the key principle is pay essentially pay us more if we do the right thing in terms of providing value, not pay us per thing we do. So so you've now got a practice set up with this broad payment mechanism of capitation, say, for primary care or even broader, including bonuses and even up to, as you said, maybe global risk, kind of as Roy Hinman discussed last week. Do you um, – and then you then take that, and how do you leverage that into your practice, and, and how, is, how have you done that? Yeah, so what we do then is build new practices from the ground up uh, that are based purely on this business model. So we're not taking existing practices that are doing fee-for-service and trying to change them. We're not even taking a practice of doing fee-for-service for some of our patients and this population base for others. This is all we do, right, we build from scratch. It means that now we can see our job, by the way, not as one patient at a time, but that we have a population of people. They are our problem. You know, how do we improve their health? and keep them out of trouble. This is really what population health is, right? And it's not an adjunct to what we do. It is the core of what we do. Um, what we've realized is if you really believe that, you need to build a very different delivery model. So number one is it's a very robust team 
of course, doctors are important. I'm a doctor, and uh, we need uh, our job is really document is, is really to um, to diagnose and treat. That's what we're trained for. But, but there's a whole lot else if you really are serious about the population to really help patients execute on those plans. And what we've evolved as a team, which which is centered around folks we call health coaches. And they're people who are from the community, speak the language of the people they serve. Uh, they're hired for one thing only, which is empathy, being able to connect to other human beings. We have three of them per doctor. And what they do is help our patients execute on the plan, make a plan, figure out what to track, learn about the disease, hold your hand when that's the right thing to do, kick them in the little behind when that's the right thing to do, uh, really help in execution. We enroll, involve sort of mental health into the practice, having a licensed social worker who can help us with mental health barriers, we have a nurse, we uh, um, we completely change our day. You know, we start each day off with a huddle where we spend 45 minutes talking about our patients, not the people coming in necessarily because they're coming in. We'll figure it out. What we should be doing is talking about the people in our population who are not coming in or getting into trouble and what can we do proactively to avoid that. Uh, we, um, you know, we see people one-on-one in visits, of course, but we also do uh, about half our interactions by phone call, by email, by video chat. We spend a lot of our time proactively reaching out to people as opposed to waiting for them to come in. We do lots of groups, which are a great way to sort of uh, engage a lot of patients, have them engage each other. Uh, we build a sort of de facto narrow network of specialists beyond us who we can sort of work with on a doctor-to-doctor basis. Um, so as you can tell, this is not a little different than a typical primary care practice. It's actually very different because it's built for a different purpose. Given the differences in the practice you've talked about, how does the how how have you been able to find providers, or are there certain providers that are a little better at this model, or not as good at this model? Yes, yeah, so this model is not for everyone. Um, you know, I think there are docs who what they're used to and what they want to do is basically churn through more patients, and you know, more power to them, let them do what they're doing. We're not trying to convince anyone to change what they're doing. I think there are a large number of docs who went into medicine because what they really want to do is take care of populations. And they love working with teams. They like sort of being really the role of the doc in our practice is not seeing one patient at a time. The job is what I call system architect. If you have a population of people, they're your problem. Uh, and you use a variety of tools to actually try and improve the health that keeps them out of trouble. Some of that's you seeing them one-on-one. But it's also running groups. It's managing health coaches. It's using data, using IT systems. Uh, it's a really a very different, um, different model. And I think for a lot of we're finding plenty of docs for whom this is exactly what they've been looking for. And getting into the IT systems you mentioned, obviously you've got a population, you know who they are, it's kind of like the, the uh, Population Health Alliance's framework, which is identify, assess, you know, stratify, engage, do your intervention, and then measure the results. What are you using? How do you identify, as you said, those people you want to bring in um, versus the ones maybe you're seeing that day? What systems do you have yeah, for that? One, yeah, so one of the things we realized early on when we started building these very different practices with a different goal, is that the existing EHRs out there, electronic health records, weren't built for this, right? They were built, not surprisingly, for the old system, which is largely document, code, and bill. Uh, And to the extent there's any population management functionality, it was sort of an adjunct or, you know, hooked on. So we've had to build our own own system. So we've been building our own tools because because we've had to, to to meet our workflow. So uh, the, the number one thing we do really is, uh, in terms of stratification, is we give each patient a number, and we call it a worry score. It's how worried are we about the patient. It's a score from 1 to 10, uh, 10 being they're in the midst of an immediate crisis, uh, and 1 means they're, doing completely, they're completely healthy. And what it triggers really is how often 
should we be reaching out to check out with them? So the 10 means we should be checking out with them every day that are in the middle of a crisis. A one means they're perfectly healthy and we should check out them once a year. And we actually check out with them on their, their birthday, which is the night. And that number is driven by two things. First of all, it's driven by data. Do we get patient-reported data? Simple questions like, how do you think your health is? Uh, how, how empowered do you feel to affect your health? It's driven by clinical scores, their blood pressures, their A1Cs, their LDLs, et cetera. And then the claims data. We look at whether it's been to the doctor, are they feeling their meds, have they been to the hospital or the ER. And that comes up, an algorithm comes up with a number. Now the doc can override that number based on knowledge that they have. But what's interesting is when the doc overrides the number, we have them give us a reason. Why did you do it? And then what we can do is review those reasons and make the algorithm better over time. Um, so this worry score really, I think, is helpful for us to know where to target our our attention. Fantastic. I love this concept of a worry score. And this, you know, we, I've looked at all these different stratification systems, and one of the things I've found that has always concerned me about, about DM and care management and some of these is they become so structured based on a score that, the, in effect, the interaction is, is uh, okay, it's once a quarter, and that's it. There's no variance. But it sounds like you've got between one to ten a broader range, and also the ability to impact that or adjust it as needed, or give the team the opportunity to be flexible. Is that true? That's exactly right. What's funny is I think a lot of DM sort of programs have been based on strict algorithms, and, and there's a great quote I, I, I have from Anna Karenina, the, the Russian novel: "Happy families are all alike." Unhappy families are each unhappy in their own way. So, you know, healthy people are pretty similar, but when you get sick patients, they're actually sick in their own way, and the solutions are actually pretty nuanced of what you need to do. So I don't think the protocols actually work, to be quite honest. I think what you need to do is get people with empathy and good skills, um, use the tools to help them direct, you know, how often they should do it, but then have them come up with kind of what the solution is and be flexible about it. So it's this combination of... Uh, you know, um, yes, you need data and IT, but you also need to use the sort of people skills out there uh, and combine the two. So it's one way to talk about what we're doing is building a new operating system for healthcare, which is this merging of the data and IT, but, but not leaving out the people part. Yeah, you talk a lot about relationships and, and the coaches and bringing them in from the community. Can you give us some examples or stories of some of these, some of the patients? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and so again, the coaches, we really, what we found is that, uh, you know, again, most people, when they're doing this sort of case management or care management, they sort of jump immediately hiring nurses. The nurses are all well and good. But to be honest, what we learned is that the only skill, yeah, said, the only skill you really need to have is empathy, connection. I can teach everything else. And what's almost more important is having people who have less social distance from the patients they're serving. So they live their life and they can actually talk directly to the patients. Um, so our health coaches, the best ones we have, uh, you know, have come from places, usually service industries. So we've got health coaches who work at Dunkin' Donuts or Target or Sears or we're baseball coaches or high school counselors. or um, and, and they can come from anywhere, you know. Um, if someone to work at Christie, you know, the auction, auction place, uh, waitresses, it, it doesn't matter. Um, and they really make an impact on patients. So, uh, so if you don't mind a quick story, you know, people always ask, what is it you do that sort of makes a difference? You do a lot of things. And, and I, I remember uh, very clearly a patient we had in one of our early practices in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Her name was Joyce. Uh, and I saw her the first day she came in, and uh, she was what the health coach called a hot mess. Her hair was disheveled. She um, 
uh, diabetes, hypertension, out of control, A1C is in the 15 or 16 range, or blood pressure is in the 180s, not taking her meds, in and out of the ER, in and out of work. Uh, and so we met with her, gave her a health coach. She sort of started going with her program. Uh, and I had to leave the practice. Uh, we were starting a second one. And then I came back about nine months later. And Neil Patel, one of the docs who took over for me, said, Rashid, remember the lady you saw the first time who you said was such a hot bet? She's back. I want you to meet with her. So I'm like, sure. So I walk in the room, and I almost don't recognize her. Hair is combed, a little bit of makeup on her. Blood pressure's in control. Uh, A1C is seven and a half. Taking her meds, back to work, no ER visits. Just for this look in her eyes that she's really engaged. So I look at her eyes, but Joyce, um, you look great. She said, thank you, doctor. I never feel better in my life. I said, what have we done to help you? And she said, it's actually really simple, doc. Is this health coach cared about me? She taught me to care about myself, and I didn't want to let any of us down, right? It's almost that simple, right? If we can do that, truly engage patients, all the rest of it we can figure out. Um, and so it's this relationship that matters. But now to get that relationship, we have to create everything else because I think there's so many things in current health trends that get in the way, the stupid payment system, the, way, uh, the IT systems, the space design, the staffing models, the RVU expectations, right? So again, we've had to rebuild the health system just for that one point. That's that's an incredible story. And you've talked a little bit in our previous conversations on taking on things that people can do something about, and you'll see a quicker impact. And I think that's just a fantastic way to look at this. Um, and that case you, you talk about clearly exemplifies how that works. On a, on a larger scale, you're taking this out now through Aura Health to health plans, I understand, as well as uh, directly to employers. Is that is that the case with the system? Yeah, so we started, I mean, so we started uh, our first practice under Renaissance, which really was a direct primary care practice where we had patients and, and who would just pay themselves to sort of get around the, the fee-for-service payment. Uh, we then sort of evolved as we started IORA into working with uh, uh, employers and uh, union trusts. Because uh, you know they're on the hook for healthcare costs, and they understand that the stuff they're buying isn't working. And so we work with them. So we work with folks like Dartmouth College for their employees up in Hanover, New Hampshire, or the Casino Workers Union Trust in Las Vegas. Um, in the past year, we've sort of moved now to serving health plans, and we've been working with health plans, uh, for instance, Humana and Medicare Advantage. We also work uh, with some health plans on exchanges. We work with the Nevada Health Co-op, for instance, uh, in Las Vegas uh, to bundle you know, our practice with an exchange plan and sell it on the exchange for folks. Uh, so we're really trying to figure out what are different ways we can sort of apply this model and find ways where people are going to be willing to pay us differently. And so each of these you've talked about are really groups that are at risk, whether through the health plan or through a union trust or an employer that maybe has a self-insured program, and they're then delegating some of that primary care or broader risk to you through that contract. Yes, it's exactly right. So we're offered as a primary, typically as a choice for their uh, employees, members, whatever, uh, that they can come to us, uh, get primary care in a very different way. Um, you know, and then, the, the, again, the, one of the core propositions we have, not only are we asking it paid differently, you know, it's a flat fee, the other core proposition is that primary care typically uh, has been about 4 or 5% of the healthcare dollar in this country. And that's ridiculous. I think that means that we're spending 95% of the money on failure of primary care when people end up having to go to the specialist or the hospital or the ER. And that's a really dumb investment philosophy. So what we also say is we need to double down 
on primary care. And so we asked for sort of, you know, roughly 10% of total healthcare spend, and that allows us to pay for health coaches and the technology and the other things we do. Again, take some of these things that you speed on at the health plan level, but put it into primary care where we have a real relationship with patients, we have real clinical data, we have a real effector arm. Um, and that the benefit payers is that we save money on the back end, hospitalization, ER visits, et cetera. Yeah, I was about, about to get to that. So you kind of delved into it a little bit. You've got you've got the system. Obviously, everyone talks about, hey, we want to make people healthier. We want them to live better lives, this and that. But at the end of the day, it's got to save some money. So you're seeing some of those savings. Can you give us a sense of, one, where those savings are coming from? Uh, obviously, I think some of them are, are, are pretty, you know, straightforward. But also, what kind of impact a group could look at who's paying for these types of services? Yeah, so so really the services are coming from downstream care, right? So uh, what we've seen over and over again is uh, big drops in hospitalization. So, you know, 40-odd percent, you know, 38, 40, 41, depending on, on which 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 place we're looking at, uh, percent drop. And this is, you know, not pre-post. This is relative to a control group, right? So it's a good, rigorous analysis by independent academics. So 40% drop in ER visits. About fifty percent drop. Sorry, forty percent drop in hospitalization. About forty-five or fifty percent drop in hospital in ER visits. Right, so keeping people out of the emergency room. You know, thirty uh, odd percent drops in other outpatient costs like specialist costs, et cetera. Um, drug costs are about a wash, and really, what happens is, um, you know, we're able to reduce some drug costs by sort of taking people off medications they don't need. Um, you know, and a lot of people are on sort of way too many medications, but also the people who are on the ones they, they do need, they actually take more often. Our compliance rates are much, much higher. So in some ways, you drive some costs up a little bit. So those essentially wash out. Um, on net, what we've been finding, uh, you know, is sort of 12-ish percent net drop in total healthcare spending. That's a big number, by the way, um, uh, you know, relative to what we've been spending. That's a, that's a very big number, and, and those, those statistics are really excellent. I, I've seen a lot of DM programs, and I, as I've told people, when you put or care management or health management programs, when you when you um, put these into, and they are successful. I I typically would tell people back in the day when I had a company, you're going to see your pharma costs go up because we're going to improve that adherence rate. That's not what we're focused. Obviously, we want people to be taking their meds appropriately, yep. but let's see if we can drop those hospitalizations and ERs. Do you have additional hours or other things you do to make the practice more accessible to patients? Yes, absolutely. So we're typically open, you know, at least a couple of evenings a week. We're going to start opening on Saturday mornings at a few of our sites. Uh, our patients, uh, our docs are available 24-7 um, on call. And actually, the doc who knows you, not a huge national call group, but one of the few docs you've gotten to know. Uh, and again, I think that helps. Uh, we'll open the practice after hours if we have to to give people access. We run IV fluids and, you know, uh, again, I think we do whatever we think it takes to keep people out of trouble. Great. And you, you've you seen the federal government, obviously, with these huge efforts, ACO is the solution, patient-centered medical homes. What's your thinking on those types of approaches versus the direct practice or uh, full-risk models, things like that? Yeah, so, so I mean, the very simple um, rule, I think, that I follow is if you don't change how actual patients get actual care, it's all a waste of time. And unfortunately, a lot of these medical home and ACO efforts, I think, are a waste of time, right? So I've seen lots and lots of people who hire folks who say, certify my practice as a, as a level three medical home, but don't change anything about what they do. And because it's all structural stuff, do you have a policy to do this and the other? Like, who cares what the policy is? 
that do really do it, right? So I think it's too easy, unfortunately, to fit the structural thing um, and not fundamentally change what you're doing. Similarly, with a lot of ACOs, a lot of lawyers, lots of legal structures, if you ask the question to many of these ACOs, um, and they buy practices and jack up the rates, so they're now monopolies. Um, but if you ask the question, does actual care change for actual people? The answer, unfortunately, often is no. And I think those are all a waste of time. And in some ways, that should be counterproductive because it might uh, make people sort of you know, give up on this sort of thing. You know, and again, are there people who are becoming medical homes and ACOs who are actually changing care? Absolutely. And I think those are really interesting. Um, I think a lot of the principles are the same, but, uh, but you have to be careful to make sure we're actually doing something here. Do you, do you think that that's because they're still being forced to operate in, in the existence of some people talked about in two different canoes with a foot in each, one fee for service, and the other value-based or risk-based contracting? Is that the issue? Yeah, so I, I think two things. So first of all, a lot of the payment for this stuff, and even what CMS is doing now, is they're, they're saying we're willing to give you population payment, but it's on top of fee for service. So they give you sort of fee for service, and then they give you a you know some sort of case rate on top of it. I think that's really suboptimal. As long as you do even a little fee for service, you have to put in place all the mechanisms for sort of volume and churning, and uh, so that's why we just say we've just it's toxic to good primary care. It's toxic to population management. Stop doing it, right? So. That's number one. And the other thing, as you mentioned, exactly that, is almost everyone who's doing this tries to take the same practices to fee-for-service for some of the patients and some sort of blended model for the others. And that's really hard. We tried that in an earlier stage. We worked with the Boeing company and a thing called the IOCP, the Intensive Outpatient Care Program, where we had exactly this sort of model where we would um, take people and uh, have fee-for-service plus a case rate, and but they would be only for the Boeing employees. And the rest of the folks in the practice would be the usual. Uh, and it's an unholy mess, right? Because all of a sudden you're, you realize that doing fee-for-service for population and doing this sort of population management is not a little different. It's completely different. Uh, and uh, and to optimize either one uh, requires doing very different things. Uh, so you end up sort of color-coding the charts and trying to treat people differently. It becomes sort of a logistical and maybe even more importantly an ethical sort of mess. So, so that's what we've decided, right? If, if, we want, if we're serious about innovation, what we ought to do is sort of create places where we can just do it the new way. Um, I think if I were a big health system, uh, what I would do is the way to innovate is not to try and make everyone do both things, but find places where you can actually just do it this way. So that, that leads into this next area, health systems. We're seeing a lot of merger talk. Obviously, you've now got the Aetna Humana merger. Um, as as you've begun to take risk and others are taking risk, what's the future role for a health plan in these types of systems? Yeah, so I think um, progressive health plans, you know, who we work with Humana, for instance, who I think is very progressive in, in forming relationships with people like us, uh, have a huge role. Like They have a lot of data systems and a lot of um, uh, things that they can use to help. I, I think one of the problems we've had in U.S. healthcare is we've set up, again, back to relationships, this adversarial relationship between the payer and the provider, right? And the fee-for-service encourages that. I want a high rate. You want a low rate. You think I'm upcoding. You're going to deny it. I'm going to appeal it. And this is, like, not productive, right? They're my patients. They're your members, the health plan. We actually want the same thing. Let's actually act as partners, come up with payment models where we both win, uh, and let's sort of share data and uh, act together, uh, and that will lead to better outcomes. So I think that the future of health plans 
Um, I think what we've learned is sort of this health plan level intervention with the hospital provider groups, you know, is not productive. It's, it's this partnership, close partnerships of provider and payers, if we get it right, that's what the future of healthcare needs to look like. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you bring up, obviously, you work with Humana. Last week we had Roy Hinman on, who's been global risk with Humana for a long time. They're clearly innovating in this area and, and putting these new models together that are much more of a partnership. It'll be interesting to watch how this continues on with Aetna and, and with the merger, um, but I think they've been doing some stuff and reaching out to providers like you and others that are that are this new model because I do think it has to be a partnership as you talk about. As we're coming up on the end of the half hour, is there anything you'd like to add or say to providers who are considering this or worried about where they go in the future to be successful? You're obviously leading the way. Any thoughts for those providers? Yeah, I mean, so, so, you know, people talk a lot about triple aim, you know, are we improving patient experience, are we improving clinical outcomes, are we uh, lowering total cost of healthcare? And, and we do all that, and by all means, we should focus on it, but but we focus on what I call the quintuple aim, and so the fourth one, we do those three, but also we focus on um, joy in practice, right? And I think what really got me off on this was I remember very clearly sitting in my practice years ago uh, and, you know, finished a long day of seeing 40 patients as a primary care doctor, having spent two hours to finish my notes, which is not uncommon, uh, and a colleague sitting there doing it with me, and she said, you know, every day I'm losing a little piece of my soul. We went into this to help people, but the current system doesn't allow us to do it. And I think she was exactly right. So I think models and, and this change, a lot of providers are afraid of it. There is a vision that's much better for the providers and as well as the patients, as well as the system, uh, if we're able to do it. Um, and then the fifth one, oh, by the way, is, is economic sustainability. We have to do this in a way where we make money or else we go out of business. And, and by the way, it doesn't matter if you're a for-profit or non-profit. There's a lot of, I think, um, uh, I think waste of time have spilled over that. You know, it doesn't matter what people's tax status is. Um, I think there's a vision out there if we're willing and able to do it. Well, thank you so much, Rashika, for joining us, not only for innovating, but also bringing joy to physicians' practices. I think that is just fantastic. Thank you again, Rashika. And with that, I'll turn it back over to you, Greg. Well, that will have to be the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Rashika Fernanda-Poli, the co-founder and CEO of Iora Health, for his time and insights today. Do follow this disruptive primary care system on Twitter via at Iora Health and also on the web at www.iorahealth.com. We do this weekly, uh, next week beginning at 12 noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern on Wednesdays. Join us next week as we continue our focus on primary care innovation with thought leaders in primary care. We have tentatively scheduled Dr. Jay Lee from Memorial Healthcare, who's recently elected to be president of the California Academy of Family Physicians. Until then, this is Greg Masters saying... Bye now.